Hey, family, this is David Mahan, and uh, there's going to be some sensitive content being shared in this particular podcast, so uh, definitely not appropriate for children. Just wanted to give you that, that heads up. There was situation after situation after situation where I was growing up, where I look back now and realize that if, if those Christian um, values had been part of my family, there wouldn't have been the hurt. That, there, that my brother and I would have grown up to be so much healthier. And all of this started because of my parents divorcing through California's um, new rule. I think it was 1972. My parents were one of the first that had gotten divorced under that no-fault divorce. And so... Thank you, Ronald of, Reagan. Right. You sort of see um, you know, how you break down one of the values, and there's this domino effect, and that's how we've gotten to where we are now, where we have children as young as eight years old who are being developmentally delayed, where we have, you know, legislators who are considering legalizing marijuana, thinking that's going to be good in any way whatsoever, when in fact it's incredibly harmful for kids. We need to start putting our kids first. We need to start protecting them from this, um, you know, what's really trying to undermine families. Welcome to the Narrative Podcast, where we're unpacking the toughest issues of the day. This is Center for Christian Virtue President Aaron Bear here with my co-host, our policy director here, David Mahan. We're on volume three of the narrative, uh, talking about children first. Uh, And we have, my goodness, uh, just an unbelievable guest uh, for you this week, uh, Dr. Aaron Brewers uh, in town, actually our first in-person guest. Uh, We've done all of these over Zoom, uh, but uh, she has an amazing personal story. Um, of uh, when she was a child and she was pressured uh, to uh, to gender transition uh, after being molested and 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 the trauma she's gone through and and even her own personal journey of, of being in prostitution and porn and now today uh, being such a powerful advocate uh, for kids against uh, the gender transition movement. You're, you're just going to want to hear this interview. Uh, but we got David back in the saddle here with us for 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 segment one and and I'm really excited to have David here with us because. You know, David, again, for those of you who heard David's story before, David uh, was living the, the good life of, uh, of, of getting to just be out there working directly with kids and helping them. Then we, we brought him into CCV, uh, and, and David's gone, gone woke in the good way here. Um, and there's no better example of that, of, of David going woke on marijuana, where when, when, when David started, if I would have said, hey, we're gonna, we're, we need you to be our lead advocate uh, opposing recreational wa- marijuana, he would have shut the door and not come back. Um, but but now David's are uh, D- David's out there speaking at press conferences uh, and, and talking to lawmakers uh, about about marijuana. So David, you could tell him what just happened last week and and yeah. and and what the issue it, it is. It has right now. been a family. It's been amazing uh, last couple weeks. Um, just just filling the atrium with. Um, you know, just a diverse group of folks on every way imaginable, uh, age, industry, you know, to oppose this addiction for profit industry uh, that uh, that they're trying to push on the state of Ohio. In the midst of a 10 year uh, high in opioid deaths, uh, we're going to bring in, you know, this new stage one narcotic, schedule one narcotic into the state and flood the streets with uh, with more addiction and, and, and broken hearts. So just to see everybody coming out was, was amazing. I have been going door to door and, and with anybody that will talk to me on both sides of the aisle and, uh, and just hearing some of their responses have been amazing. We have bumped heads quite a bit uh, on the medical side as well as the recreational side. 
but just hearing everybody's responses as to why this thing is a good thing for the state of Ohio has been very interesting. Yeah, why, why, you know, what you have right now in Ohio. So 18 states have already legalized marijuana for recreational use. Most states have actually done it for medical use, which is which is a farce. And I, I want to hear, David, you talk about that in just a minute. But, but on, on the recreational side, um, for a lot of folks, they, they can wrap their minds around why this is a bad deal, bad idea. But... Most of the time, the response we get back from from a lot of folks, even even Christians, is uh, it's going to happen. It's inevitable. What's the big deal? How how much is pot different than uh, than alcohol? And again, they'll they'll say the, the actual name of the campaign in Ohio right now, and this is the the same branding they've used in other states as well, is regulate marijuana <laughs> like alcohol, um, which again. You know, it's such a silly proposition when you really understand how marijuana works and, yeah. and everything else along with it. But, but David, it, you know, big picture, someone someone comes up to you and says, you know, what's the big deal about recreational marijuana? What are you saying back to them? Well, the the question is, is it really uh, about medical marijuana or recreational marijuana? If you look at all the other states that are going on, um, it starts the same way. You, you've got a program called medical marijuana that um, is actually the uh, gateway. I'm going to cut you off. Just do recreational. I want to come back to medical. I know, I know you want to talk about medical and I do want to talk about medical marijuana. Okay. But let's start with, with, with recreational and then work backwards. So what's the harm of recreational marijuana? Five different areas. Um, The, the opioid crisis that we're in right now. Um, very few medical associations say that marijuana is actually good medically for even even um, you know uh, pain management. Uh, which, if you look at all the you know states like Florida, Colorado, Arizona, those are the number one reasons. Up to ninety percent, ninety nine percent of the people who are on a medical program say that they're on it because of pain management. And so you know you've got the the AMA, all these different groups saying that no, marijuana is probably not the best way. Uh, to deal with this. As a matter of fact, when you have somebody on medical marijuana or yeah, marijuana. Yeah, I'm going to cut y'all again. <laughs> Get off medical marijuana for two minutes. I, I, off, stay man. off hey. medical marijuana. I, I, like, I'm trying, I'm trying to talk to. about recreational marijuana. <laughs> I swear, I'm trying. Don't, don't talk about medical. <laughs> I know you want to talk about medical marijuana. I want to talk about medical marijuana. Medical marijuana is literally the gateway to recreational marijuana. We're going to talk about that. Right. I, I, I don't I don't want... And it's important we talk about because to your That's point, right. they, they are linked. But for for the issue that's going to be on the ballot in Ohio, the issue that's gonna, that is that is all over the place is recreational. So let's... I just want to hear with, with, with all the states that have done recreational, Colorado, California, uh, Arizona's done it now, New, New York, York has done it. Michigan. Michigan yeah, all these states that have done recreational... What has the harm been for legalizing marijuana for recreational use? Yep. I'm going to read a couple of headlines for you. Marijuana worse for teen brains than alcohol, study finds. All right. AAA, in opposition of marijuana legalization, expects increase in traffic fatalities. Uh, Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, crash rates jump in, in wake of marijuana legalization, new study shows. Uh, the AMA, this is not a solution for the opioid crisis. Right. Which which Scioto County, you know, Southern Ohio was ground zero for the opioid epidemic. We are at a 10 year high in opioid deaths. And, and we got legislators right now saying, that, hey, bringing in an entire industry. Aaron, this is not just about, you know, grandma's three, four percent THC dope. This is about an entire addiction for profit industry coming into the state of Ohio 
right, to flood the streets with high potency narcotic, uh, you know, 70, 80, 90 percent gummies. Right. Um, you know, they're dabbing gummies. This stuff let, in let, the how many grown men and grown women <laughs> are sitting around right now just eating gummy bears, just plain old right. gummy bears? How how many other than Vince, our producer? I mean, I, you know, I'm saying I like how, gummy how many how many are sitting around? I appreciate you stay off my back buying about. buying gummy bears. Tell me who is who these who these high dose uh, marijuana uh, gummy bears are for if they're not for targeting kids. Yeah. I mean, it's just stony patch kids, uh, stoned Oreo cookies. Uh, here's another headline: copycat pot edibles that look like candy are poisoning kids. Doctors say. Uh, this is, I mean, we've got, yeah. we've got so much of this, um, so much of this going on across the country. College of Psychiatrists warns that cannabis is gravest threat to kids' uh, health today. Uh, and, and when I'm in these hearings, I'm not hearing anybody talk about what's going on in these other states. What, what is motivating or animating the press in these other states uh, as it relates to recreational marijuana? <laughs> Well, and, and here's the thing, though. I, the last thing I really want to drill down on, and you talked about this, and this is, uh, especially for Ohio, this is where I think the 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 rubber meets the road on this, and why I, I actually feel fairly confident we're going to beat this. You, you mentioned Ohio has record opioid deaths right, right. now. I actually, you know, we flash back 10 years ago uh, to, to when your boy J.D. Vance uh, wrote his oh, book, yeah. uh, uh um, what's what's JD's book called? Uh, Hillbilly, Hillbilly Elegy. Hillbilly Elegy. You know that was when everybody was fo- the, the the opioid epidemic was the thing we were focusing on, right? And and you, you know you really had all these things coming out about you know they were prescribing there was more than one pill per person. Yeah, uh, in the they country featured Ohio in that book Dreamland. Yeah, exactly. I mean it, it, it's it's everywhere. Um, well, we actually last year broke those like that you could see the numbers you know around 2015 2016 they actually started coming down um you know we, we were starting to get a, a good handle on this and then the pandemic and everything else made them shoot up well now uh now they want to bring marijuana into the, right. the the equation here recreational marijuana and the the studies show 95 percent of opioid users start with marijuana yeah so so there, there is no denying marijuana is a gateway drug. Now, does every person who starts smoking pot end up smoking, end up moving to to, to opioids? No, of course not. Again, I, I shared this. We had our press conference. You were mentioning we were in the atrium. We had our press conference. I shared that when I was in high school, uh, I smoked pot with my buddies. Uh, grace of God, uh, I, I got out of it. Uh, I started smoking. I smoked pot for the first time at 13 years old. And grace of God, I got out of it. Mm. Uh, but I know I, I got two guys in my mind right now that didn't that ended up on harder drugs and there were way uh, three guys another guy just came, came to mind one guy ended up killing himself like we we know that this is a pathway down there that's right uh and, and so the the idea that right now as we're trying to recover from this pandemic uh, as we're as kids have just gone through unbelievable pressures we're going to bring marijuana into the equation. Yeah. We're, we're trying to bring in, you know, some speakers. One guy, Kevin Sabetti, he, he basically was 
uh, uh, on the Drug Policy Advisory Board for, for three presidents, you know, Obama, Clinton, and George W. Um, and uh, we'd like to bring in Dr. Dr. Finn. This guy's 27 years in pain management in, Car in Colorado. And he's saying the number one risk factor for adolescent opioid misuse is ever having used marijuana. The number one predictor of opioid use disorder, even in adults, is ever having used marijuana before the age 18. Yeah. Tell that man that it's not a gateway drug. Yeah. No, it, again, it, it's it really is. And, and you know, there's there's other aspects of this, too, which is, you know, you go to this is what Kevin, you mentioned Kevin Sabet, the, the, the guys at Smart Approaches on Marijuana. You go to Denver right now, you go to San Francisco and especially the the the, the urban communities, yeah. uh, they have been decimated by this and 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 so now you have liquor store payday lending shop pawn shop Green man medical shop and 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 then right next door to that a pot shop and you you can actually see they showed us a map you could see in denver where all the pot shops are and it's like surround it's all in the urban communities you know the, the same folks that are exploiting uh poor folks with the lottery the same folks that are explo exploiting poor folks with uh, with, with alcohol and, and tobacco, they're now doing it with marijuana. Yeah, I, I, you know, we got Wellington Webb. This guy's a beloved African-American Democrat mayor, 12 years running. This guy said that uh, he was wrong. He was for legalization. Now he's saying the money promised for education is going to marijuana regulation and pot industry. He's saying that the, that the traffic fatalities went up 32 uh, percent. And all of these things are all of these, these spots are in the hood. So, you know, you know, as I'm going around to these offices talking to Democrats and Republicans alike, you know, I'm asking, why would we do this? And, and I actually had one of them just yesterday tell me, well, Dave, uh, we're going to build some wealth in the community with it. And I said, but on the backs of who? Right. You know, when these industries move in, they make money on the heaviest users. Right. On addicts. And the best way you build an addict, Aaron. Right. Is to get them young. Right. And not that you would know about being an addict. But <laughs> just, <laughs> listen, listen. OK, so, David, you've been you've been so patient with us because you've been itching to get it medical. <laughs> so, so I just want to set the stage a little bit here uh, on medical. Oh, 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 why are y'all? Why hey, no. if anybody hiring? Send me an application <laughs> to David Mahan at no, no, no. <laughs> I want to, I want to let it rip on, uh, on medical marijuana. I, I, I want to start with recreational because that's the thing that's before people, but it's, the, and again, this is one of the reasons why I genuinely do love this man and David Mahan <laughs> is because you know, in the political world, everyone tries to separate out these two issues. There's, yep. there's, there's recreational and there's medical. Well, again, David didn't come from the political world. Uh, we've corrupted him by bringing him into this uh, political world. Uh, and, and he is rightfully seeing that the logic, and, and, and I got to tell you, if you are somebody who believes in medical marijuana, who, who might, that might have a different, just hang with us for, for a few minutes here as we talk this through. Because you cannot separate out medical marijuana from recreational marijuana. Um, and again, all, all you need to see is the, the political posturing and the political maneuvering, the way they move money around to understand what's actually happening. But, David, the floor is yours to let it rip on medical marijuana. I don't want to now. <laughs> Medical marijuana program is the gateway policy for recreational marijuana. And I'm going to prove it with just two points. Number one, 2015, we had the Republicans sponsoring bills to get us a medical marijuana program. Um, we have that now. 
Now we are with 261. We're expanding the medical marijuana program, just like other states had, you know, five, six years from medical marijuana, you get recreational marijuana. I, I had knew nothing about this issue, Aaron, until um, I started researching a couple months ago. And this is just how I see it. And, and now that I see the research, it is what it is. We're expanding our medical program. They capped it at 70% THC. So, you know, with marijuana, you've got CBD, which is kind of the healthy stuff. Um, it's not the stuff that causes psychosis. And then you have THC, which is the potency stuff that, that makes you high. And, uh, and usually when you start messing with that plant that grandma and them used to smoke, you, you minimize the CBD healthy stuff and you, you increase the THC, you know, psychosis type stuff. And so right now there is no medical use for marijuana over, uh, you know, 20% THC. And mostly they're using around five, six, 7%. So initially why in the world we need a 70% THC product for a medical program in 2015. And now in 2022, he wants to expand from 70% to 90. Because in order for the dispensaries to keep up with the, you know, for the white market, white collar, uh, you know, market to keep up with the black market, you have to give them, you know, the uh, uh, ability to make the edibles and the gummies and the brownies, which are all high THC uh, recreational. The second point is, um, the capital letter. So, just I just want to pause right there. So, you just just to to highlight what what you just pointed out is that a lot of the medical program right now uh, is being used recreationally. Yes. So, so I mean, it, it's it's even the idea that yeah, folks are getting cards for you know pain or something else, but really they're they're being prescribed so liberally. It's really just ending up being used for. Uh, yeah. And, and that's that's the point as well, is that, you know, what you have to do, you know, you have to take it from the pharmacies. Right. The agencies. And then now you have to create a, a side bootleg, you know, cannabis uh, agency to because the, the pharmacies aren't going to regulate something for for uh, recreational use. You can't go the FDA route. Right. Because the FDA is not going to, you know, put out their 70, 80, 90 percent THC products. And so also what you have to do if it is expand who can get a medical card, right? You don't get to green man shops, uh, you know, 10 green man shops in a four mile radius like Colorado and California, uh, unless you have, you know, dispensaries everywhere. So you have to increase dispensaries. You have to increase uh, potency. Uh, but, but the other thing I was bringing up was that the capital letter just put out, I think it was uh, February 22nd. They were looking at the $1.3 million. Capital race. Letter is a, is a publication that uh, Cleveland.com puts out. One more time to cut me off. Listen, and he's going to uh, well, some if marijuana. you can set some context for our listeners here, <laughs> you're, you're just riveting. If you're like, what the heck is the Capital Letter? $1.3 million raised uh, uh, by this, this new recreational campaign was raised by two separate groups. One, the same group that was pushing the medical program in 2015, and two, the brand new medical marijuana industry, the dispensaries, the growers, that's where all of the 1.3. Now, how benevolent it must be for one industry to just donate $1.3 million to build another industry, right? And so the, the thing that disgusts me to no end is that you've got these Republicans over there who are in their district talking about the pro-life bills and all these bills. But then behind closed doors at the state house, you know, they're going to give their ceremonial no vote for, for recreational, but they were the kingpins that built the whole program in the first place. And on that note, I turn in my resignation. <laughs> now, so, so I want, I want to drive a few points home here that, that, that David has made. Um, and, you know, first and foremost, um, you know, the, the, the political playbook 
that the marijuana industry has run um, has has been in the open for everyone to see for 20 years now, really. Uh, I mean, the, the since the beginning uh, of the medical marijuana conversation uh, in the country, um, and and what it is is they come in with medical, mm-hmm. they come in with with heart wrenching stories yeah. of of people who have been helped. And hear this out: people have been helped by smoking marijuana. Those same people would be helped uh, by ingesting other medications, right. also readily available through the FDA. But that doesn't negate that yes, indeed, some people have been helped by smoking marijuana. Um, so they, they come in under this, this guise of we're Mm -hmm. just here to help people. It's so important that people are able to access this drug. And, and so they, they bring in the medical marijuana and then they get these shops open all over the place. And I'm, I want to talk for, I'll talk after this about why they have to open their shops. Cause even that shows their hand that what they're doing is crooked. Yeah. So the pharmacy, CVS, Walgreens. So, but, but so they, they come in and they set up these shops uh, and then, so they have the, the 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 industry paying for them from out of state coming in, paying to set up these shops. Then they start not just producing; it's it's not as much about producing the marijuana in house. It's about producing money mm-hmm. in the state. So they start making up their money, and they go hire lobbyists and more lobbyists and more lobbyists till you get to the point where you have in Colorado right now, where even though you have politicians in Colorado acknowledging that this thing is a disaster. Yep. From Politi- every industry. From every industry. Politically, they can't get it undone because they have hired all the lobbying shops out there and conflicted them out, and they have such a force to stop this from being repealed. So they they build up this political, literal, literally political capital, not just in terms of relationally, but money-wise. Mm-hmm. They build up this, this capital around medical marijuana. They expand, they expand, they expand. And then they get to... then Then... They have the political force and the political dollars. David was just talking about the $1.3 million the medical industry has de- donated uh, to the, the recreational uh, effort here to push for full recreational. Mm-hmm. We know, what I just explained, you know inherently is what's happening. Like that, that's, that's what this is all about. It, it's, it's so out in the open. Everyone knows it. I want to talk, though, about the FDA. Because this is, to me, this is the key of all of this that shows the, the sham of medical marijuana. Because as everyone who knows, listens, is listening to this podcast knows inherently, you can get much more dangerous drugs at any pharmacy than marijuana right now. You can go get Oxycontin. You can go get whatever, whatever that, that, that drug is. You, you can go get a much more dangerous, much more addictive drug than marijuana at the at the pharmacy. So the question is, why do if if we want to have quote unquote medical marijuana in the state, why do we have to set up a separate industry? That's right. And the answer is because the marijuana industry has does not want to go through the FDA approval process because the FDA would not approve what we have created in America as medical marijuana in the states. That's right. They would not approve it because smoking all the data shows smoking a drug is the most ineffective way of getting the medical benefits out of it Mm -hmm. and so 
uh, instead of going to the FDA and being rejected, they have decided to just bypass all of it because it, it, what they have done for what they've done with medical marijuana would never get FDA approval. Would never be able you'd never be able to go get that from a pharmacy because it's not effective at what they're claiming it does. Right. It's not about medical anything. It's not about medical. So it's it's all about building this political force. And so again, it's why you know. I, I love David and, and, and his, you know, his, it is true. If you're talking about recreational, you can't look at it outside of the context of medical. Um, but the other side of this is when you, the jump from medical to recreational mm-hmm. in terms of devastation and harm, especially That's for right. kids is massive. I mean, you, you really do, you just pour gas. So, so the medical program has caused problems, but you, you, you throw recreational on there and you're just pouring gasoline on this thing. Just like any other, other uh, exactly. thing. So uh, my apologies, uh, one, uh, to uh, Claire, uh, our, Claire Dyson, our communications coordinator here, who came up with, who had two other really good stories and had done some good research for us to talk about. <laughs> Sorry, Claire. Um, uh, no apologies to David uh, for cutting him off because I just try trying to get the people to to build the narrative here for him. I'll say it when I say it. <laughs> My apologies to our good friends who are at the state house who are wrong on this issue, but they're still our good friends. That's true. Um, but uh, but this is this is the reality um, of of what's happening with marijuana. We're gonna we're gonna take a break. Um, we're you know. Uh, we're we're going to try to get back on track with our next segment with uh, with Dr. Brewer, Dr. Aaron Brewer. It really is a phenomenal conversation. Yeah, uh, and we'll be right back here on The Narrative. Center for Christian Virtue seeks the good of our neighbors by advocating for public policy that reflects the truth of the gospel. We empower people like you to have a voice in the culture on the most important political and cultural issues of the day. Through our public policy advocacy, grassroots activism, church ambassador network, Ohio Christian Education Network, and Christian Business Partnership, there are countless ways for you to get involved. Join the movement today by visiting ccv.org or by clicking the link in the show notes. That's ccv.org and click join the network. And welcome back to The Narrative. This is uh, your host, Aaron Baer, president of Center for Christian Virtue, here with my co-host, uh, David Mahan, our policy director here at CCV, uh, and and we this is a, a, a monumental day for, for The Narrative because in in Two and a half seasons now. This is the first time we've actually had a guest in person uh, with us, uh, as opposed to using Zoom. So we're seeing people in the flesh once again, uh, and and excited to have our, our guest with us here today for a, a very um, very important conversation. Again, the the for for this volume of the narrative, you know, we're we're looking at all the different ways uh, that our culture, our society, uh, is making children make sacrifices for adults. Uh, that's why we're we're calling this season "Children First. Um, and and examining across all, all of our world right now this way. And there's really uh, one, one of the biggest ways this is happening, you're seeing in with the gender movement and transgender ideology. And that's why we are so blessed to have Dr. Erin Brewer here with us. Uh, Dr. Brewer herself, Erin uh, has had, uh, as, a, as a young child, was, was molested and dealt with transgender ideology as she experienced that and had good counseling to help her through that, uh, but then had an incredible journey uh, through that, leading her to here today. She has her bachelor's degree uh, from Hampshire College and her doctorate in instructional technology and learning science from Utah State University. Uh, she's actually she lives in Utah, uh, but has come and braved the actually not too cold of Columbus, Ohio right now. She's 
flew in to testify in support of the uh, SAFE Act uh, that's going to be getting hearings here in Ohio. Uh, and uh, we're just so grateful, uh, Aaron, for you being here with us today. Um, could you just share a little bit about, uh, we, we just want to hear your story. Uh, what, what sort of brought you into these issues? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for um, pushing so hard for the SAFE Act. It's such an incredible piece of legislation that's going to save so many children. So thank you. And my experience um, is is not uncommon, and I didn't realize it at the time and didn't realize it until I started speaking out about this, but it's not uncommon for children to develop transgender identities as a result of trauma, whether that be sexual assault or something um, you know really horrific that happens to them, because a transgender identity is basically a dissociative disorder. You're trying to kill who you are and become somebody else because you have this mistaken belief that who you are isn't okay anymore. So after I was assaulted, I just, um, I first of all, didn't think there was a way to be safe as a girl. I thought if I continued to be a girl, something like that might happen again. So I went to first grade and told my teachers I was a boy. I wanted them to call me Timothy, wanted to use the boys' bathroom. And I was pretty uh, verbally and physically aggressive because I was trying to mimic boys. And in my mind, that's how they acted. Thankfully, my first grade teacher didn't affirm me being a boy, didn't say, you, you can be a boy, you can go in the boys' bathroom and we'll call you Timothy, which is likely what would happen today in most states, even in Utah. And the reason that I started speaking out about this is because Utah proposed a therapy ban legislation that would have prohibited my school psychologist and my other therapists from providing me the therapy that I got to help me understand that my transgender identity was a result of that underlying issue rather than I was inherently flawed and that God somehow made a mistake. Yeah, yeah no, th- that's those the, the conversion therapy bans we hear about all over the place, which again, they, they, they only ban conversion one way. Uh, that is the, the, the way they, they only ban you from helping a child realign their uh, you yeah. know, sort of uh, mental state with their biological realities. Um, they, 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 they allow the conversion, they push the conversion the other way of transitioning from boy to girl or girl to boy. And so few people really understand, they hear conversion therapy, and you know, I saw this over and over again in responses to media stories about the conversion therapy ban and Equality Utah, which was the organization that was really pushing it, pushes this narrative that they're trying to prevent children from being tortured. They're trying to prevent them from being, you know, being electrocuted. They're trying to prevent them from being beaten or humiliated. And that's just not what happens. That doesn't, that's illegal. Uh, Grownups can't do that to children right now. That's just not something that can be done. And so they're really, they're trying to um, get support for conversion therapy bans by scaring people and by giving them a lot of misinformation. And really what they're doing is they're, they're banning the very therapy that I got talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, therapy to help me to understand my very difficult feelings and to learn to embrace myself rather than to try and create a new identity. Yeah. And, and you see, you know, my, my, my wife is a, a reporter. She covered this for Christianity Today. You see where these conversion therapies have gone in Canada, where they've gone in Australia, uh, where they've even been, you know, there, there's pastors in Australia today that won't allow their sermons to be broadcast online because if they're teaching a biblical message on sexuality and marriage uh something like homosexuality is a sin and and uh, if, if if you have homosexual urges you should restrain from refrain from sexual activity those types of things 
um, that would be considered under their conversion therapy plans. That would be considered illegal. That would be considered attempting to change someone's gender identity. Um, and that that's, again, where, where we've just seen uh, every time they pass a new law, they just keep pushing further and further and further and further down the road. Well, and one of the problems with the therapy bans is that if, if children aren't allowed to get therapy, then really the only option when they're having these difficult feelings is to medically transition. Right. And the therapists have to affirm their identity. And so um, the therapists have to sign on now to these incredibly horrible interventions. And I think about myself as a child and what would have happened to me. They would have put me on puberty blockers, which would have induced a developmental delay. They're basically retarding children's growth and development. And then they would have put me on cross-sex hormones, which would have rendered me sterile and permanently changed my body, causing long-term side effects. And likely I would have gone and gotten a double mastectomy before I was 15. And when I think about the route I went on, which was learning to accept myself as a girl and learning to understand that what happened to me wasn't my fault versus being put on a path of basically saying, you're right, that self-hatred you have is valid, and the only way you can survive is to medically transition. I just think that's such a horrible message to give to a child. We know children can work through very difficult feelings if given the chance, but because of the way they've done this first banning therapy and then making these medical interventions so readily available, and then telling teachers and parents and doctors that if they don't affirm these kids that they're essentially abusing them Um, it's just it's heartbreaking so I'm so thankful for legislative efforts to ban these interventions give kids a chance to learn how to accept themselves and to um, become healthy and functional yeah I I, um, I've listened to several of your interviews and um, you know just in my research with all of this you and um, and Walt Heyer have been great inspirations for me um, just to remember that this is bigger than just an issue, you know, and, and um, as somebody that um, has really put your neck out there, I just want to say thank you. Um, but one of the things you, you say that um, really sticks out is if had you been affirmed back then, as young as you were, um, you would have committed suicide. And really, that's what we're hearing the opposite of that. If we don't affirm, then then children will commit suicide. It, it brings me to mind of, uh, of the Karolinska um, research um, that said that the suicide, um, actually actual suicides went up 19 times. What we don't hear is that it took them 10 years to, to find that out, right? It, it, I never hear anybody mention that part is that they didn't just um, have the surgery and then two years later commit suicide. It, for, for most of them, it took over 10 years to find out that this didn't work to the point where folks were still committing suicide. Um, so could you kind of explain a little bit of, of, of that, how, how you see suicide in the opposite light, uh, yeah, had you been affirmed? Well, and I'm glad that you brought that up because one thing that a lot of people don't know is that testosterone is a controlled substance. Okay. It's a steroid. And almost any woman who takes it is initially going to feel really good. They're going to... Um, they're going to get stronger. They're going to develop more self-confidence. Um, their libido is going to increase. So basically, testosterone is going to make any woman, any girl, mm. initially feel really good. And so they start taking it. They feel really good. And this is one reason it's a social contagion is their friends see them and they're like, ah, oh, I want some of that. That's a 
that's a pretty great drug that, that my friend just started taking. And so all they have to do is say, I'm transgender too, and they get access to testosterone, which again is a controlled substance. We should, we should be um, very careful about handing this out. Uh, recently, there was a clash a- action lawsuit where men who had been taking testosterone to virilize themselves in older, you know, as they got older, won a lawsuit because it, it turns out that the long-term side effects of taking testosterone, even on a male's body, are really profound. And so imagine if it's that bad for male bodies that they were able to win that lawsuit, how bad it's going to be for female bodies. And so it takes that long because initially they're, they're being told, it's okay, all you have to do is, is go the next step. So first get on the puberty blockers and you're going to feel better. Well, if that doesn't work, that's okay. Go on the uh, cross-sex hormones and then you'll feel better. And if that doesn't work, that's okay. You can get the surgeries. And there's a whole lot of surgeries. If you've ever talked to somebody who's been through the surgeries, there's lots of different surgeries that they can get done. And then once they get those done, they realize that they've done all of these things and they still don't feel better, but they ha- now have a whole array of different problems, profound medical problems, medical bills. They've damaged their bodies. Oftentimes they're sterile. This is just, um, and, and they still have the same problems, the underlying issues that caused them to want to transition in the first place. Aaron, could you go a little deeper into what are those um, procedures? Uh, just because I don't think a lot of people understand. And, and you, you make a statement that the, the purpose and the goal of therapy is to heal, not transition. And they say that, that this is all for healing. Right. And so just kind of I don't think people know really what's going on here. Yeah. And the, the surgeries are just horrifying. Um, they're, they're on, on both male and females, but, um, for girls they're oftentimes they'll, uh, do a double mastectomy, which means removing both breasts. Increasingly, they're not even reattaching the nipple. So these girls are basically just flat chested. They look like prepubescent boys, only they don't even have their nipples anymore. Um, oftentimes they will get something called a phalloplasty, which is, uh, removing the skin skin and flesh of the forearm and creating essentially a fake phallus out of it, attaching it to, to their um, area, their reproductive area. And it, this is a non-functional phallus. It's, it's not in any way, um, they can't use it to have intercourse and they can't use it to urinate. It's purely cosmetic, um, but it leaves a huge wound. So they have to take a skin graft from the thigh to put over the forearm. So a girl is left with, with this horrifying scar oftentimes it can damage the nerves in their hand so they lose full function of their hand and it also causes lots of urinary tract problems because they um, you know they're doing surgery in an area that's not meant to have those kinds of surgeries and oftentimes they end up with horrible urinary tract infections Um, just all of this for basically cosmetic changes basically being told that you will be happier if you're somebody else rather than again helping them to to resolve the underlying issues that they had. And to me, that's abuse. To me, you know, when I hear someone talk about wanting to ban therapy, I'm like, how on earth can you want to ban talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy that will help a child to become happier and healthier and more functional versus put them on this path, which causes profound physical damage and mm-hmm. lifetime consequences and sterility? Yeah. <laughs> um, my goodness. Lord help us. I, I just, uh, um, <laughs> we deal with these things every day uh, at, at CCB and you just get angry after a while here of, of what they're, they're doing to kids. I got to jump in here. I, yeah. So I was talking to Walt um, the other morning and 
he probably works with more detransitioners than anybody else on the planet um, every day, you know, waking up at six and five in the morning, you know, just until he said sometimes at nine thirty at night. And one of the things he was sharing that I, I rarely think I, I just up to that point, I never thought of was the issue of once you choose to detransition. So all of these folks who are so loving and so concerned about health care and kids committing suicide, once those same children go through or adults go through the procedures, cutting this off, sewing that on, they can't find any health care to to reverse that, even to the degree that it's possible. I am so glad you brought that up, David, because I had a discussion with one of the gender doctors from the University of Utah right after the one of the hearings, because she was talking about how these kids need it. It's life saving. They get so much distress. Right. And I, I cornered her in the hallway and I said, I just need to ask you why it is that you're pushing these interventions so much, but when a child detransitions, realizes it's a mistake, there is no support for that child. She made a joke about how there are a lot of women who need laser hair removal, and she's Greek, and, and she, uh, she has a lot of unwanted hair, so it's no big deal. But what she's doing is she's saying that this certain kind of distress is more important than the other, even though it's the exact same distress. It's a distress about how, um, how you look. And rather than getting that help, they're telling them to go get these interventions. But then when a child realizes it's a mistake, there's no support. Insurance won't pay for them to detransition. Right. Um, you know, it's, I, I talked to a detransitioner and you know, her voice really bothered her because it was so deep. She had been on testosterone and it just was something that bothered her. So she finally went to a doctor to see if there was something that they could do. And the doctor was pretty rude to her and basically said, sorry, you just have to live with it. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they are sort of privileging one kind of distress over another, to me, it's clear that this is an agenda. Yeah. A couple, and I want to. I, I still want to hear more about your your personal story here, but I I, I want to stay down this thread here a little bit. So, you know, the thing that gets me one people don't have a concept for how pervasive this is, right? So, you know, I'll just speak for Ohio. You know, it, every major medical system here is doing this, right? So, nationwide children, Cincinnati Children's, Cleveland Clinic. I mean, it's it is. It's everywhere. And so if, if someone thinks, oh, well, this isn't happening at my local hospital, you're, you've, you've fooled yourself. Um, no matter where you are really in the country, it's happening in Texas, it's happening in California, it's everywhere. Um, but from your perspective, having interacted with these folks, how much of this do you see as greed from the medical systems? Because it's, you know, it's big money. And I, I always say, you know, transition surgeries it you know it's like big tobacco or like uh, where, where if i can get you smoking at 10 i got you for life you know it's, it's the netflix of medical procedures where every month you got to come back in for more injections um is it so how much of this is being run by the, the the greed of these healthcare systems and how much of this is being run by the the ideologues uh, buried in the system well i think it's a very powerful partnership and i think that the pharmaceutical companies have found a very vulnerable population that they can push their meds on and um 
there, the interesting thing about the puberty blockers is that if an adult gets prescribed puberty blockers, um, there's certain kinds of cancers that are sensitive to hormones, and they will prescribe the very same medication to adults to stop the endocrine system from, from producing hormones that are aggravating cancer. And it's much cheaper. And so the fact that the very same drug, when prescribed for a child with gender dysphoria, is you know, thousands of dollars a month versus if it's prescribed for an adult who has a hormone sensitive cancer. So that right there is an indication to me that this is sort of a pairing of ideology as well as greed. Um, but as you said, once these kids are on, are on this path, they're medicalized for life. I have a good friend named Billy Burley who works with Walt and he went through the whole transition um, had had numerous surgeries, realized it was a mistake, and every morning he has to get up and give himself a shot of testosterone in order to stay healthy. So they have a lifelong customer. But I also think that this ideology goes much further than that because it's being embraced um, in a way that, that really doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, when, when I see the UN pushing this, when I see the UN connecting foreign aid to countries accepting this ideology, to me, it feels a lot more insidious than just a bunch of people wanting to make money. They're actively trying to undermine children, undermine families, break children away from their parents, and um, also take away our religious liberties because a big motivation behind this is the idea that if a if a woman says she's a man you better accept her as a man which means if there are churches that have priests that that turn away a woman because she's biologically a woman they're going to get sued so it's a way of really undermining um, religious freedoms undermining parents to me it really seems like uh, a cult that's taken over and it's more of a state-based religion now. Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to start there then because, because we've kind of come back to faith and, and the fact that you are a woman of faith today, that you're a, a sister in Christ uh, with your background is amazing. Um, so, so we kind of left things off in your personal story of after having been molested between your kindergarten and first grade year, uh, you were you were desiring transition. Thankfully, you had counselors and teachers that didn't go along with it. Uh, but you, you, there was more to your story that brought you here from there. Can you can you sort of share that story some more with us? Well, and I'll I'll do a little plug for your medical marijuana bill because um, this is hard for me to talk about, so I might uh, choke up a little bit. But the reason that I didn't get the help I needed immediately after the assault is because my parents were druggies. And when I came home, they, they wouldn't call the police. So this puts parents who are smoking marijuana, who are using it in their homes, puts kids at risk. And legalizing it isn't the solution. Because parents who are, parents who are drugged out don't make good decisions mm-hmm. for their parents they, or their kids. They can't parent them. So I needed my teachers and my school therapist to get me the help I needed because my parents were drugged out on marijuana. And that's um, all part of this ideology is you get the parents so that they're not taking care of the kids, so that kids have to be taken care of at the schools, and then the schools get to dictate the morality. And it just, it's so, I, I sort of have this sense of, of understanding that I never used to. As you mentioned, I grew up in an incredibly liberal home, um, probably sort of the epitome of what this ideology wants all families to be now. And it's not healthy for kids. It's incredibly dangerous and damaging. Um, So I grew up really thinking that Christians were bad, that they were, um, you know, hurtful and bigoted. And I didn't understand 
until I started speaking out about this and really spent time around Christians, how important it is to have these boundaries, whether they're from the Bible or from, you know, the Constitution or whatever. We need some boundaries in order to protect children. If we don't have them, they're incredibly vulnerable. And there were there was situation after situation after situation where I was growing up where I look back now and realize that if if those Christian um, values had been part of my family, there wouldn't have been the hurt that there that my brother and I would have grown up to be so much healthier. And all of this started because of my parents divorcing through California's um, new rule. I think it was 1972. My parents were one of the first that had gotten divorced under that no fault divorce. And so, thank you, Ronald of, Reagan. Right, you sort of see, um, you know, how you break down one of the values, and there's this domino effect, and that's how we've gotten to where we are now, where we have children as young as eight years old who are being developmentally delayed, where we have, you know legislators who are considering legalizing marijuana thinking that's going to be good in any way whatsoever when in fact it's incredibly harmful for kids we need to start putting our kids first we need to start protecting them from this um you know what's really trying to undermine families Aaron, i have to um ask you about um reverse onset gender dysphoria um a lot of folks don't understand what that is and really it's it's taboo to even mention something like that in the media. Could, could you help our listeners understand what that is? Well, and this is a big one because my situation actually is, is less common for, for children to develop gender dysphoria at, at such a young age. What's happening now is a rapid onset gender dysphoria, ROGD, and my organization is seeing this every day we have parents reach out who say, my child was perfectly comfortable with the sex that they were born until they hit middle school or until they hit high school. And what's happening is we have, there's gender clinics that have paid employees who go into schools now and tell kids they get to choose what sex they are. Um, If they're at all uncomfortable with the changes that are happening with puberty, it's probably because they're born in the wrong body. And um, a lot of these kids are on the autism spectrum. They're vulnerable kids who are bullied who don't have a lot of friends. And as soon as they announce a transgender ideology, they just get love bombed. Suddenly, everybody in the school loves them. They get lots of attention. They get really celebrated, which, you know, most kids really feel good when they suddenly, if they if they haven't been fitting in, if all of a sudden they're getting all that kind of affection and attention. And other kids see that, and they're like, I want some of that. And so they start um, doing this identity, and it, and it the problem is, is that they have these um, clubs. The the mm-hmm. Gay Straight Alliance is what they used to be. Now I'm not even sure what they're yeah, called. Still, and this is a Gay Straight. I think that they're called the Gender Sexuality Alliance in some schools now because mm-hmm. they're they're pushing the gender thing because um, they want to. I think they want to. They want to somehow recruit every single kid. And so if they tell kids that if you're uncomfortable being the sex that you are, if you're somehow gender nonconforming, you're actually born in the wrong body. But People need to know this is actively happening in schools. That yeah. these and, and the other thing, I mean, I come from Utah, which is generally thought of as a conservative state. The Utah State Board of Education is at the moment considering a policy which would actively hide this from parents, which would allow teachers to not tell the parents if their children were, were going into the boys' bathroom or identifying it as a boy. 
And in some states like California, we see gender clinics on, you know, on site. We're seeing mm-hmm. Planned Parenthood getting clinics on site. So the wow, kids Planned don't Parenthood's even have Planned Parenthood's involved in this. Oh, wow. Planned Parenthood's involved. Who would have thought? <laughs> and this is interesting. I, I volunteered for Planned Parenthood for much of my life. Um, I was a firm supporter of Planned Parenthood. I thought that they did good. And part of the reason that I thought they did good is because when I was a teenager, they gave me birth control pills and I didn't have to ask anybody and they gave them to me for free. And it wasn't until I started, my, my children started to get to that age. I started thinking, why on earth were they doing that? That's not a good idea. Children shouldn't be um, engaged in sexual activity. But what's happened is that as abortion rates have gone down, um, I think that Planned Parenthood has been looking for another business model and this is it. And um, I've, I've talked to, uh, detransitioners who have gone in and on their first appointment, these are kids who oftentimes have depression. Yeah. Sometimes they have serious mental health issues like bipolar disorder. They're autistic. Sometimes they have um, other disabilities. And on their first visit, they're prescribed testosterone without any background check, without any um, physical. Sometimes they'll run a blood test, but oftentimes Planned Parenthood will give it, will give them the prescription for testosterone before the results of the blood test are even in. That's how easy it is to get testosterone now. And again, this is a controlled substance. This is a, you know something like a steroid that athletes get in trouble for taking. Yeah. So, so you were you were a Planned Parenthood supporter. <laughs> did you did you volunteer? You said when you say you're planning for, you volunteered at Planned Parenthood. I volunteered you, for the fundraisers. Oh wow! Yeah. Uh, so so then you went to Hampshire College, <laughs> and so, so there, there we 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 got the school gap. We we got the school covered then. Where, where, where then, like from that road to, to becoming a believer to, to what, like what, what was that road that they got you there? Well, it, it was this issue. Um, I, when Utah introduced the conversion therapy ban, I felt really compelled to go talk and tell my story. And at the time I was a liberal, I was an atheist and my husband was very confused about why I felt the need to go Uh, testify about this issue. I hadn't really talked about it much at all, but I felt, I just felt compelled to go. It's the way I, I, now I would say I was called, but at the time I felt compelled. And what what year was this? What was it? (laughs) This was about four years ago. So it wasn't that long ago. Um, And I went to testify and I started meeting people that I had been told were evil, that I had been told as a child were, were the bad guys. And it turned out they were loving and kind and caring people. And ultimately, I was invited to an Eagle Forum conference in Washington, and I was surrounded by love. I'd never felt that kind of unconditional love before. These women were just, um, they were kind and caring, and they cared about children. And I started thinking, boy, if I had been brought up in a family that was Christian, how much different my life would have been like. And I was very nervous because I had been involved in prostitution and pornography, and I thought, if these people really knew me, if they really knew my background, they, they wouldn't want me here. And so I felt like I needed to confess to them and let them know, like, I know you invited me to talk about my transgender identity, but I need to tell you who I really am because I'm not sure you really want me here. And I told them, and they just loved me even more. It was the first time I just felt unconditional love. And on the plane home, I just... I realized I needed to make a decision. I needed to either um, actively turn my back on God or accept him. And 
I am so grateful that God pursued me because <laughs> I wasn't easy. I was one of those sheep that not only had I wandered off, but I ran away and I, you know, I got in so much mischief and I'm just thankful for, for the women to really reflect that love to me. So what was your family's response through? I mean, that, that's a radical shift. It was a very difficult uh, couple of years. Um, I got baptized and the day after I got baptized, my husband sent me an email saying he wanted a divorce. And that was devastating because I felt like, how is it that I can, ex- you know, all of a sudden I got a you know, father in heaven, but I'm giving up my marriage. And that was really devastating. Um, but I think it was just a, a knee-jerk reaction on his part. And we've had, you know, it's been a couple of rough years, but we're working on it. And we're both very committed to the marriage and to making it work. So we're in therapy. And I think he's starting to realize that there's, you know, it's not that I suddenly became a bigot, which is what a lot of people think. I've lost a lot of friends. I've lost some family because of speaking out on this issue. And it's because the narrative is if you don't embrace the LGBTQAI plus ideology, that you're somehow a, a bigot. And I think he's slowly realizing that this is coming from a position of love and compassion. This is because we do not want children to feel like they were born in the wrong body. We don't want to encourage them to dissociate. This is about their health and well-being. On, on that note, and I, and I have to say to um, our listeners, there's such a sweet presence of God in this room um, right now. And I just, as she's giving her testimony, and um, if there was a child who, and I'm not talking about the media or even when you testify, you'll be testifying here and you'll be meeting with several of our legislators one-on-one. And I fully expect the same presence of God and the beauty and sweet uh, testimony that you're sharing now to be there. But if a child was standing before you right now, tears in that child's eyes and saying, are you a transphobe? Are you a homophobe? Why do you hate me? What would be your response? I would say, I love you. I love you and I want you to be healthy and I want you to love yourself the way I love you and the way God loves you. And that is something that for me was so powerful when I became a Christian was the opportunity to be able to see myself through God's eyes just a little bit and to realize that he forgave my sin and that he was there for me. And I had a dad even when I didn't feel like I had anybody else. (laughs) And that's what I would tell a child is that you are loved beyond your imagination. And that's what they need to hear because somehow they've been convinced that they're not okay. That's right. Yeah. No, that's right. That's right. So as you, can you share more now about what you're doing now? Um, What, what, what you're, you know, we we flew you out to to share your testimony here at, at, uh, at the Ohio State House, you said you testified at Utah. You you, you travel in some some uh, pretty great circles uh, with some good friends of ours. Um, but what's your what's your work now, and and how much of your time are you focusing on these issues? Well, I focus uh, most of my time on this. When I'm not with my family, I'm I'm focused on this, and and it's because I feel like we're at a tipping point, and it's not just um, children are being harmed permanently. Um, I think about my my children, and when I was in high school, I went and asked a doctor if he would sterilize me because I was absolutely sure I did not want children. And he said, no, no, we won't do that. And I am so thankful because my children are my joy. And when I was in high school and way before that, I never envisioned wanting having children. 
And when I think about these children being sterilized, that's what motivates me every day. That's what gets me up out of bed and fighting this because every child deserves to make that choice when they're an adult, whether or not they want to have a family. And we're taking that away from them. So I, I um, Advocates Protecting Children is an organization that I co-founded with Maria Keffler and another parent who is um, incognito right now because her child is still... Um, believing in the transgender ideology. And I, I try to do my best to share my story. Um, one of the things we were talking about before we started the podcast was the Always Aaron book. Mm. And the reason that I wrote that, um, first of all, I felt comp- called to do it. And I called Maria, who's, who's the co-founder of Advocates Protecting Children, and I told her I thought I was supposed to write a children's book. And we both went, oh, how can you possibly write a children's book about your, you know, your story, because it's, it's not a pretty story. It's, it's horrible. You know, no child should be sexually assaulted. No child should, um, have so much self-hatred towards themselves that they want to, um, become a different person. But with, I, I really feel like, um, with the help of some loving and kind therapists who understood my story and Maria and other people helped really to craft this book into something that is, I think um, it's a difficult children's book, but it's appropriate. And I wanted to write something to, to push back against the I am jazz narrative, which is in almost every school in the country now. And this is a story of a boy who was told from the time he was about the same age as I was, that he was born in the wrong body. And instead of getting the help like I did, he was pushed on this path. So it's sort of looking at the two different stories, one of them of, of a child who has been, you know, if you look at Jazz Jennings now, this is a, this is a child who was damaged. His story is heartbreaking. He was exploited. I believe he was terribly abused by his parents, by doctors, and by society. You compare that to what happened to me, and... I don't, I don't know that I can say that, you know, that I'm a role model by any means, but I didn't, you know, go down a path of permanently damaging my body. I worked through the difficulties and I realized, I got to the point where I realized that sexual assault wasn't my fault. I don't know if I ever would have gotten to that point if I had been told that I was indeed transgender. So I feel, I, I mean, it's, it's hard being in this fight because it's not, um, popular, you know. There's a lot of pushback. A lot of people calling me hateful. Um, I get, you know, I've gotten some threats, physical violence. I've gotten threats of people who say they want to get me kicked out of my housing and my job removed. And most of us who are in this fight have gotten similar threats. But I just think about, you know, that little Erin, and and if she had been pushed down this path rather than having really good people step in and help me. Um, that's what gets me up every morning. That's yeah. what gets me speaking out every day. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, uh, Aaron, thank you so much for, for being here. Thank you for, for sharing your story. Um, so uh, always Aaron, uh, E-R-I-N, uh, not, 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 not like me. <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, not A-N. A-N. Uh, um, uh, but if people want to buy the book, where do they go? Well, you can go to advocatesprotectingchildren.org um, and you can buy it there or it's on Amazon. So either, either way. Great. So so be sure to go to uh, advocatesprotectingchildren.org. Um, be sure to, uh, if you're not on CCV's mailing list, uh, go to ccv.org. You'll see all the information about the SAFE Act, which um, is, is basically our bill in Ohio to ban hormone therapy on children uh, and, and puberty blockers, cross-sex uh, therapies as well on, on children. And, uh, you know, even hearing your story again, like, even for those people that want to buy into 
transgenderism uh, as a, as a good idea, as a, uh, a viable solution for people and, and want to buy into this idea that you can change your gender, which again is not medically accurate, but even for those folks, the idea that why not wait until you're 18? Um, what the, the, the idea of forcing this on kids when ev- every person can think about something that they thought so certainly when they were under 18. Um, and now they look back and go, Oh goodness, I'm glad I'm not stuck in that, yeah. uh, in that, that realm, you know? Uh, and so, uh, I mean, that's what the heart of this bill is. I know that's so much of the work uh, that you're doing, uh, today and we're, we're grateful for that. Uh, and so for any of those who are interested in the safe act, you can go to ccv.org. Uh, you can also go, um, to our website, uh, to, to actually, you'll be able to watch. We'll have a, a link to, uh, the testimony that, uh, Dr. Brewer has given, uh, for, uh, before the Ohio State House, um, and uh, and you can see more about her there. But we are so grateful to have you here on the narrative. Uh, thank you to our uh, producer Vince from Wessler Media uh, for for producing our podcast for us. Uh, we're we're going to continue this discussion about children first, about all the ways uh, that our culture today is forcing kids. Uh, to make sacrifices for adults. Uh, We've got some amazing guests coming up. Thank you, uh, Claire Dyson, our communications coordinator, uh, for helping book our guests. Uh, And we'll be back next time. 